Spice up your practice routine with original exercises and adaptations of all your favorite method books in 5-8 and 7-8 time. Odd Meter Technical Exercises for Trumpet by Michael Hengst. Oddmeter-exercises.com Some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of trumpet dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb. Welcome everybody to the show, and we are uh, really privileged to have Mr. Paul Mercello. On the show, we can find him on the web at paulmarcellotrumpet.com. He's the principal trumpet of the Montreal Symphony. I think they say it slightly different up in Montreal, but for our purposes, it's the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. And he is embarking on a really amazing project. He just premiered a trumpet concerto by a fellow you may have heard of, Wynton Marsalis. And he's premiered it and hitting the interview circuit to get the word out about this great concerto. I've heard a couple of clips of it on social media, and it's very Wynton Marsalis, I have to say that. So welcome, man. It's great to have you. Thanks, James. Great to be here. Okay. How do they say it? What is the official way they say it? It's because it's a little different from what we're used to. Okay. You ready? Yes. Orchestre Symphonique de Montréal. Like I said, the Montreal Symphony. There you go. Just stick with this part. Just take out the T and try to sound as French as you can. I realize that if I just hold my tongue and speak, I can sound with a French accent. (laughs) Because we're bilingual, all the advertising and all the recordings we do, it's we write it in French. But when we travel in, in the United States, most people just call us the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. When I was growing up, way before I could ever dream that I would be the first trumpet here. I bought recordings of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. That's the way I knew it until I moved up here and realized that I better learn French real quick. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a chance of learning that because I lived in Vietnam for a while and I realized very quickly, and even foreigners who've lived there for years and years, they just say, unless you're born here and you were raised learning this dialect, it's very difficult. Yeah. I can relate a little bit to what you're saying, but like Vietnam... And Korea, where I've lived, they speak just enough English where you can get along, and they tolerate it. And they want to practice their English anyway, so it's cool. Let's get into this uh, amazing project. How did it? How did you get to be like the chosen one that is going to premiere this piece written by the great Wynton Marsalis? Well, this is a co-commission. There's four of us involved in it. Mike Sachs was the lead sponsor who dreamed up this idea and contacted Winton. 
And if I'm not mistaken, they might have gone to school together. But anyway, they've known each other for a very long time. So Mike was the lead sponsor on this. Thank you very much, Mike, for doing this, because that's just an incredible accomplishment to get Winton to write this magnificent trumpet concerto, which I'll get into the details of that in a moment. So then, then the next person to, so Mike premiered it. He did the U.S. premiere in April, last April, with the Cleveland Orchestra, obviously. And then Hokan Hardenberger did it with the Verbier Festival, which you can listen to on Medici TV. Medici TV is a subscription-based platform, but there's so much content there available that it's worth it to join. I would highly recommend uh, people to, to subscribe to Medici because there's just so many broadcasts there. And I have a, a recording project I did two years ago called Gershwin's World, which was my first ever venture into a jazz and classical hybrid project. So that's on Medici as well, if you want to check that out. Then uh, we were uh, the third in line to do it. So we did the Canadian premiere on August 19th with uh, Montreal Symphony and our music director, Raphael Priori. And we did record it on for video. So what I'm releasing on social media now are promo clips. We um, are not allowed at the moment to release the entire video because the orchestra wants to release it on their website at a later date. So once I know that date, I will announce it. But I am allowed to release, uh, I believe it's up to three minutes of promo clips. So I'll be releasing, I think even tomorrow, a, another one. And Winton has been very gracious now to, we are co, how do you call it? Co-creators on the reel, I guess, on Instagram. So we've gotten, I think, a combined, I think 75,000 views already on the two videos, which is super cool. And then, so the fourth person to do it, it will be Alison Balsam with the London Symphony. And I think that's happening probably next month, if I'm not mistaken. Esteemed company you keep. I'm honored. I'm really honored. And I have to thank my orchestra for going to bat for me. Actually, we had a conversation a few years ago about composers that I'm very that I'm currently very interested in writing trumpet concertos. And my dream list was it's pretty pretty tall order. And Winton's name was definitely on the top of that list. I'm just really grateful for my orchestra reaching out to his management and him agreeing to have us be part of the project. It's just super uh, cool and it's just a great honor for me to be a part of this. How did the premiere go? It was scary right up until the moment that I stepped out on stage and realized, okay, I, I dedicated six months preparation. I turned down quite a few projects to get ready for this one. I really, it's a six movement concerto, 35 minutes, three different instruments. I don't think I've prepared for a solo project like this, with the exception of the solo recordings that I've made, but those are multiple concertos. This was one concerto, but as I said, 35 minutes is not nothing. I had to build a lot of endurance, a lot of flexibility, a lot of power, a, a very broad, uh, color palette, stylistically speaking. I've never dealt... Winton didn't write any improv. There's no pressure to improvise. What he did is he wrote what we should do as an improviser. And I really appreciate that because that took a big uh, chunk of pressure off to have to improvise in certain moments. Because there certain movements have moments where you could elaborate and you could improvise more, but he wrote it out for us. So that's just really great. And it gave me some introspection into how he improvises and what he thinks about over the chord changes and the structure of the piece. You have all of these, none of these people that have uh, premiered this piece are jazz players. 
They're all, that's for lack of a better term, they're quote legit trumpet players. So you have that's hope. correct. That's correct. I do improvise. I've been improvising for the last, I would say, five years. I've been trying to get better at it, but I would not have felt comfortable walking up on our concert hall with my orchestra and my music director and letting that fly in the moment. That would have been um, that would have been a bit stressful. I have another project next year, another premiere. Uh, by Gabriel, Gabriela Ortiz, a, a fantastic trumpet concerto that I'll be premiering in November of 2024. And that asks for improvisations. Now I'm starting a year in advance for that one because I'm really going to have to study those chord changes and really get my, my form and my structure down to be able to step onto the stage and actually improvise in the moment. Mm -hmm. No disrespect to Gabriel Ortiz, but I don't think that I would feel as much pressure improvising for one of his pieces as I would improvising for one of Wynton Marsalis's pieces. I no think. kidding. No kidding. That's, and the thing is he did, he got to, he went to Cleveland for the premiere. He was in Verbier for Hocon's premiere. He could not make ours because jazz at Lincoln center orchestra was on tour in Australia. And I really wanted him here, but at the same time, if he had been sitting in the audience in front of me, I, I think I would, I think I would have been much more nervous than I already was. But we are planning some future performances, and I'm really hoping that he can make one of those down the road. Yeah, what I love about this is that when I'm <clears throat> talking to folks like yourself or whoever it is, we have these, and I've spoken to some pretty big names in our world, in the trumpet world. But you get outside the trumpet world, and they're not big names at all. So we have this, I call it the, uh, the little pond called trumpet. And we have these big fish in this tiny little pound. But, but you get outside the pond and nobody really knows about it. It's, it has to be a big thrill for you to honor one of the biggest fish in this tiny little pond of ours. He is an icon and he's going to go down in music history as one of the greatest musicians of all time on the level of a Leonard Bernstein. What he's contributed already, just as a trumpet player, winning two Grammys in the same year, classical and jazz, is unprecedented. And what he has done in the world of jazz with create, basically creating this jazz at Lincoln Center, that was his, that's his baby. He's the artistic director, music director. He conceived the whole thing. And what he's doing for jazz is also unprecedented in the history of music. His compositions, incredible. And... I have to say, you asked me uh, how did it feel. Yes, I was very nervous, but once I stepped out on stage and just started playing, I really, for those 35 minutes, I don't think I've ever had so much fun in front of an orchestra playing a solo. And, and I've played a lot of solos with a lot of different orchestras and I've definitely had fun before, but this one was a different kind of fun. It was just that thrilling roller coaster ride that you don't want to end. Just describe the feeling, if you can, in words. Like jumping out of an airplane the first time. And I've never jumped out of an airplane, and I don't really want to. But I can imagine that jumping out of an airplane and just embracing completely 100% embracing the moment. Yes, being scared, let's say, in the airplane as you ascend to whatever, 15,000 feet. And then the moment that you jump completely letting go and giving in to the moment. That's, I could tell you, honestly, that's the best way I can sum up how I felt. Because even in my mind, right before I played, it starts with elephant calls in the jungle in Africa. It starts, it starts in Africa with elephant calls. 
And then it turns in the first movement turns into this very noble and victorious kind of fanfare celebration, perfect force and perfect fist, everything we would assume a, a, a typical trumpet fanfare would have. But it's juxtaposed with a lot of uh, three against two, very a lot of a hard kind of funk and groove beat going through it with just in the middle of it, very pyrotechnical, different chord progressions, mixed meter going over two, two and a half octaves on the instrument, high speed, high velocity. But really that first movement, it sets the, the piece up in such a great way because it's really showing whatever, everything that the trumpet can do in nature, starting from the elephant call to the perfect force and perfect fist fanfare motifs to pyrotechnical playing that's, I would say, a nod to the French virtuosic era of the Tomasis and Jolivets, and ending with this very, very empirical, imperioso, high register fanfare with flutter tones and alternate fingerings, and then finally ending with this elephant call, and then we go into a blues movement. It really, once I got through that first movement, it was like a big sigh of relief and I realized, okay, I'm in this, I'm in this and here we go and let's just enjoy the ride. And yeah, it was just really fun, really yeah. fun. I have myself, I have jumped out of a perfectly good airplane against my better judgment. So what was the feeling for you? Like I can imagine, I, again, I don't really want to do this. Maybe I will do it for a special birthday or something. But what was, when you jump, there, there must be the feeling of just, okay, no turning back. Yeah. Once they open the door and you're in their airplane and you're fine, and then they open the door, and then I, I think we had like a video of myself, and I, I could see, I could look at myself saying, What did they just do? What are they doing? Why are you opening that door? <laughs> and you're right, like you're describing this process of uh, maybe that's just the moments leading up to going on stage, and you get on there, and the, the audience gives their applause when you're there, and then the downbeat goes, That's just like jumping out of the plane. And that's exactly, I, I could relate to that. And I'm not saying that I would recommend that someone pr jump out of a perfectly good airplane. If it's going to crash, then jump, by all means. But if it's going to land, stay on there. It, it, that, that is what it's like. You're, the buildup and the tension dissipates once you're in the air. And it's actually pretty fun. And, you, and the feeling I had at the end of the concerto, I couldn't believe it was over. It felt that it went by very fast, but it was 35 minutes. And I got done and I was like, I want to do it again. <laughs> I mean, we all, unfortunately, we only did one performance. I think Mike did three in a row. And then Hokan also did one performance in Gerbia. We did one. I don't know how many Allison is doing. I would guess at least two, or if not three. But I can't wait to do it again. I, my next performance is in South Africa with the Cape Town Philharmonic in April. And what I love about that is that Winton's conception of how this concerto starts and ends is in Africa. To do the premiere in Africa uh, is just really exciting for me. And I've already spoken to Winton about it. So it's been this process now of trying to like get this baby to walk. We wanna, I wanna get it out there as much as possible. I'm sure that my colleagues do as well, Mike and Allison and Hokan. And that's just, there's a lot of orchestras in the world. So I think between the four of us, we can hopefully be a great ambassador to this incredible piece. I think it, it's going to be, I hope people find it to be a great piece of music that, that honors our instrument. Yeah, I think people are tired of the Haydn. 
the Haydn and the Hummel and the, and the Brandenburg II and the Tomasi and Aratunian. These are phenomenal concertos, but we've got to build our repertoire. And that's, you know, I, I know for myself, it's, it's, I'm always trying to juggle my orchestral responsibilities, my teaching commitments and my solo playing. And in the solo playing, I know right now I'm getting older now. So it's like, I have, my interests are changing. I've done all those concertos and I do, I want to do them and for sure. And I've recorded a lot of them, but I want now to do projects like Winton's and Gabriela Ortiz and a few other people that we're approaching right now to do these, let's call them, you mentioned borders before, like cross border kind of works. This is very interesting to me because I, I don't see that we have to live in separate worlds. I think we can learn from each other and I think we can create incredible works that are a new language. I think what Paul is referring to is before we hit record, we were talking about him acquiring his Canadian citizenship. He's American by birth, but now he's a dual citizen. And then I was describing my wife, Sana. She's here in the U.S., but she's an Iranian citizen. She's going through her own citizenship process. And I think I said something along the lines of, what are national borders other than just a creation of a group of men or a group of people? What are they beyond that? And then Paul said something along the lines of, it's very similar to music. We, we impose borders. This is where the trumpet belongs. So this is where the clarinet belongs. This is where the French horn belongs. And it sounds to me like what's happening with this, maybe probably Winton, if he were to speak, he would say his goal was to cross over those borders. Yeah. And the thing is, the most important thing, and by the way, Winton and I and Rafael Priotti, my music director, we did an interview about this on YouTube. You can see it. We, we talked about it. And Winton said something that <clears throat> really resonates with me and should resonate with all trumpet players. I should say all musicians. Oh, Winton and I, Winton studied the same books that I studied and vice versa. I mean, Schlossberg and Arben and Clark and everything else you can get your hands on. It's... This concerto is steep in great fundamentals. And I'm not just talking compositionally. Of course, compositionally it is. But the way to play it, the way to play it, even the different styles that you'll hear, you'll hear in this piece, the different styles that, that pushed me to some of my limits, um, it's still based on fundamentals. It's fundamentally good playing, good trumpet playing with a good sound, with the right colors of sound, with the right musical approach and the art of phrasing, not vertical, horizontal, all these things that I believe in as an artist and musician, and you cannot play it te just technically. You can't just play it technically. You have to have the fundamentals in place, and then you have to let them go and, and tell a story and make music with this kind of a piece. And Winton and I, we discussed this at length. He, was, he gave me so many great nuggets of information right before I had to play. He called me he was in Australia and he called me the night before and he said, call me like, Hey man, how are you feeling? I said, well, I'm really nervous. I can't lie. I'm really nervous. And his advice to me, I'll share this with everybody. His advice to me was, he says, man, don't go in there and try to play technically perfect. Don't do that. Tell a story, make the, tell the story of each movement, make the color changes. Don't try to play perfectly, play musically, play with style show the rhythmic groove that he wrote because it's very clear in the score what he wrote you have to study it very carefully the 
accents and the three against two and all the polyrhythms. It's got a dance. It's got a groove. And he even challenged me a few days before the one of our rehearsals. He said, sing through the entire concerto and even conduct or dance through certain parts of it to get that groove. And I did it. I didn't do it just once. I'm a, I think I did it three or four times. And it was liberating, liberating. Like I've, I'm going to do that on the high. Next time I played Haydn or Hummel, or I'm going to sing and dance through it because it just gives a movement and freedom to your playing. If I told you that this was one of the most accurate performances that I've ever given as a soloist, that's true. Yes, of course, I missed a couple little things here or there, and that's just the nature of live performance. But I was much more accurate and centered and solid because of the freedom I felt to make a phrase and to show the story. Yeah, I've heard that so many times where, and probably everybody has their stories, their horror stories of how they go into something and they want it to be technically perfect and we ignore the musicality behind it. It's, it may be brilliant technically, but there's no music. There's no, you've lost the, whatever the composer wanted to express with that you've lost it because you were trying to be quote perfect and well you handcuff yourself you ha so yes it's possible it is possible to play technique let me say this in the right way it is possible to play all the notes perfectly centered with a great sound and in tune it is possible and that's a very noble and wonderful achievement but you miss the bigger picture. So you have, all of us, we have a choice to make. We can aspire to just hitting that level, which is incredible. Let's, if you can just put all the notes in the center of the horn with a good sound and good intonation and be accurate, that would be quite a feat on a concerto like Winston's or Tomasi or Brandenburg or whatever. So my quest in the practice room or my challenge to myself that hasn't really got much to do with anybody else. But for me, I'm thinking in my process, okay, now, can I also make a great phrase? Can I also change the color of my sound? Can I also take a risk in the tempo? Can I also do something daring, risky in the performance, whether it be a decrescendo down to nothing or the, a big climactic triple forte at the end of the piece? Or These are risky things that might, oh, you might miss a note or a note might come slightly out of center in that moment at that time. But I've never regretted that decision. And I will continue to try, of course, to have both. Of course, I want to play quote unquote perfectly. But I can say the experience with Winton's concerto, I've learned a lot as a soloist. And I've learned that it's okay to go on stage and don't make, don't tell yourself, okay, I got to play perfectly. Tell yourself that you've prepared it as best you can. And you know where all the notes are, you know, where all the passages, all the tricky spots, you practice them half tempo and way faster than the tempo that they're written. But then in the moment you have to let go and you got to make music and you got to sing through the horn. Yeah. You're describing that advice that Winton gave you the night before. And it sounds to me like it was like he, he was giving you permission to fail, not fail, but Permission to err, to make some errors here and there. I but, think, but it, I think but, James, you're right. I think, yeah. and in a way, nobody's ever told me that before. And but, this but, is what Mark. 
I mean, it was incredible for him to say that to me. But in so doing, it allowed you a great deal of freedom in your mind, in your emotions, and your words before are that you miss a couple, but probably nobody noticed outside of you. And you'll hear yeah. any trouble player that listens to my report. Yeah, they might hear a little a little funky lick here or there or whatever. There's a pyrotechnical moment in the third movement. Wow, it's just, it's like Carnival of Venice on steroids. It's just, it's nuts. And there's like barely any place to breathe. And I chipped a little something, a little, I don't remember where it was. Of course, I listened to it, that bugs me. But in the bigger scheme of things, that's, I wasn't going through that section being like, oh my God, try to hit all the right notes here. I was trying to push the tempo and keep the excitement rhythmically going and make it flow. And in the process, in the process of flow, there may be an error, but what's more important? Is it more important if it was vertical and error free or horizontal and fluid with maybe a little glitch there? I'll always choose the latter. Of course. And you're communicating with the audience. The audience is connected and it may bug you a little bit, but it's not going to bug them. It may bug your fierce critic from the newspaper who wants to take you down a peg. You can't, we can't play for critics. That's a mistake. You cannot play for critics. You have to play for what the music is calling for and believe strongly in. And if a critic likes it, great, so be it. And if they don't... Every man has their opinion. Yeah. And everybody's entitled to their opinion. That's the freedom of choice and freedom of thought and all that. And you're never going to... I'm never going to have everybody loving my playing or my interpretation. I'm going to have people say, I wouldn't do it like that. Okay, great. So then you, let's see you go up and, let, and, and convince me of your interpretation. That's where if a young student asks me, hey, can I make it? Or is there a place for me in this business? Absolutely, there's a place for everybody. But you got to have a very clear, a very powerful commitment and message through your horror that you're sending out into the world. If you do that with great fundamentals, you have a wonderful, incredible shot at having a fantastic career. Yeah, Get people to like you as a person and they'll like your playing, even if it's not up to the standards of a Sergei Nakaryakov. You don't have to be at that level to be likable and successful. What I'm talking about is not even being likable or not. Yes, that's great. And, and if we talk about being likable, it's so wonderful. I've seen so many young child players now, I've worked with them, that are just killer players, amazing players. And they're also actually really like nice people, humble people. I think we're getting to a place in music now where the level is so high, technically. It's not just one or two players dominating the field. There's many great players. And that's fantastic. I'm sure that in, in our the four of us that are premiering Witten's piece, we're all coming to it with something a little bit different. And that's great. We shouldn't all sound the same. We should come with our own individual personalities and belief in what it should sound like. Hey, I want to interrupt today's show to tell you about Odd Meter Technical Exercises for Trumpet by Trumpet Dynamics previous guest, Michael Hankst, professor of trumpet at Metropolitan State University in Denver. These exercises are for serious players looking to enhance their familiarity with 5.8 and 7.8 meters, strengthen and expand their range and endurance, stay engaged and focused while practicing, as well as those looking to play new exercises or even old exercises, such as ones by Clark, Stamp, Gecker, and Smith in a new way. When you practice the same thing the same way without variation, it's easy to zone out or lose focus and just play on repeat without purpose. These exercises attempt to minimize that by constantly switching up the 5-8, 7-8 groupings within each exercise, and I have used them and I can attest to their efficacy. 
Aspects of trumpet playing that are addressed in this book include articulation, multiple articulation, whole tone, major, dominant, and diminished arpeggios, intervolic precision, and scales. To grab your copy of Odd Meter Technical Exercises for Trumpet, just go to oddmeter-exercises.com. That's oddmeter-exercises.com. You mentioned that you had to do a lot of work. And you also have this full-time job performing for the the Montreal Symphony. Tell us about preparing. You said it's a six-month process. When did you, first of all, when did you get the notice that you're going to do this? And just walk us through. It's very broad-based. You can take as much time as you want. I'll probably ask some questions to get some clarity on things. But what was the process of preparing for this moment and balancing everything else that you had to do? James, I don't remember the date exactly that I got the score. I think Winton actually, if I remember correctly, Winton texted me the trumpet part. And then the library, the Montreal Symphony librarian got the score. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to get, I drove down immediately downtown. I picked up the score. I think I posted that on my Instagram that here it is, the score and the part. This is what I'll be living with for the next whatever. I think that I have that in my Instagram. This, the date must be there. And I took this massive score. And I printed out Winton's. It was like a first version trumpet part because that was before Mike premiered it. And he made some changes. He made quite a few changes. And then we were on tour. The orchestra was on tour, a small US tour. And we were in Carnegie Hall doing Mahler 5, all pieces. Winton was very gracious. The more the afternoon I was doing, the Mahler 5 was at 8 o'clock. And I think I met Winton around 2 p.m. that afternoon in, at Jazz and Lincoln Center. And we spent about an hour and a half together talking about the piece. And looking at the score. And that was just really exciting for me. I was, because I hadn't really, I hadn't really gone into it yet, but hearing him talk about it was, wow, what a great way to start the practice routine because he was playing the clips on his phone off of YouTube and whatnot, Spotify of different players that he's been influenced by and stylistically the kind of sounds that he wanted me to produce on the piece. And so that got me scratching my head, okay, how do I, how am I going to work on that type of playing, that type of sound? And so the, the process began for me by implementing a, a real solid sound palette in my head of the different movements, of the six movements, what each one needed, which horn I was going to play it on, and what technically and musically I was going to work on for each movement to enhance it and to get that kind of solid technique. So let me go through it. The first movement, as I mentioned, fanfare, very noble, but also technically very demanding, two, sometimes two and a half octaves. So I, there's a lick on the page two, it goes down to a pedal F on the C trumpet, and then it rips through quintuplets, multiple tonguing up to what high B flat on the C trumpet I'm talking about. And then that section ends with this uh, very complex intervallic kind of cadenza of sevenths basically and one of the leaps is basically a low f sharp to a high c with a fermata so immediately right there in my mind i'm like i have not been practicing on a daily basis two and a half or even three octave arpeggios that are multiple tongue i just haven't been doing that in my job in the orchestra name a piece that you have to do that zarathustra Bom, 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 bom. That, yeah, but we play that maybe once every two seasons. A couple things in some French repertoire that, that mimic that, but I had not been doing that in my daily practice. And the other thing I wasn't doing is big interval practice. 
like a low F sharp to a high C. So I started to go through my Claude Gordon, my Biolin, my Schlossberg, even Arbin. The Arbin has a lot of intervals, but it doesn't go that high and that low. You have to transpose your way out of that. So I went much higher and much lower than Arbin wrote. Page 122. So I would just keep going. <laughs> Basically as high as I could go and loud because the way Winton wrote the piece, it's very upfront. It's very orchestral. It's very powerful. So these are things that I had not been doing. Second moment, very bluesy of a love ballad, very smooth playing that went pretty high, but also very low, really soft low, which I also had not been doing. So I, I did a lot of my vocalese exercises when I would start the day doing Pierre Thibault's vocalises, doing obviously the Chickowitz stuff that we all know, doing stamp into the pedal tones very soft to control my low B flat playing after just playing this very loud and wild pyrotechnical first movement. That, those two movements, I had to figure out how to mirror one technique after the other. Third movement, as I said before, Basically an homage to Herbert O. Clark and to all those bandstand cornet solos, pyrotechnical, like crazy. And if you saw my part, you would see more, you know, it, was, it was less than half tempo where I started. And then you could see on my part, clicking up two beats, four beats, six beats, eight beats, until I got to the tempo that Winton wanted. And then I went over the tempo that he wanted because I wanted to be able to see if I could push myself Beyond that, one comment he made to me is that he really wanted that movement to stand out as the pyrotechnical movement. It's the only one where we play that fast. So I had to work on my cornet playing, but he specifically wrote it for B-flat trumpet. So I went back to all those cornet solos that I played as a kid, from Carnival of Venice to Napoli and all that. And I started reading through those on my B-flat trumpet and getting that kind of language into my daily practice, which I really had ignored for a while. Okay, then force movement, tons of plunger and wah and hat work that is not in my DNA. That coordination is not easy for me. I really spent a lot of time with the wah, with the plunger especially, because I always felt like I was just cracking too many notes when I would try to use the plunger. I was over plunging, <laughs> putting it too close to the belt. So a lot of that kind of work, which was fun, but usually ended my day with that. Fifth movement is an homage to the French tr tradition of Maurice André and the French conservatory writing in a waltz manner. Also huge leaps going from low G to high C effortlessly. So again, I had to be very careful about working that, working that range in a very efficient manner, which I guess as an orchestral player, it's very easy to play to play things a little bit too loud all the time because the nature of playing first trumpet in, in an orchestra is that we have to produce high volumes and that movement you you never have to play loud as a matter of fact it's the same approach i would use on tomasi concerto where it's in agility in a softer dynamic and winton gave me some advice on that he said play inside the dynamic I, I do it naturally, but hearing him talk about that made a lot of sense. Play inside the dynamic. Don't overplay. Don't overreach in your sound. Keep your flexibility and the, and the compactness in your tone 
always prevalent so that you can really play those big intervals and that pyrotechnical stuff softly and efficiently with minimal motion. And then finally, the sixth movement. This one I found to be physically the most demanding because it ends like a Eastern European klezmer meets pyrotechnical European traditions where the, the, the violinist like would almost play wild gypsy music, like crazy embellishments and fast double tiny and all that. And it ends very high and it ends very fast. And so I had to push my double tonguing to a speed on my C trumpet that I hadn't done in a very long time. Even Tomasi Concerto, it's marked around 120, maybe 136 on the last movement. I was pushing myself around 152, 160. So a lot of going back to my top tones, A2s, Walter Smith top tones, Bousquet, Charlier. I remember one that I worked on Charlie Eli is around that tempo, which was very difficult for me at first. Sorry to be so long and drawn out, but that's the process I went through was to really take each movement and understand what I needed technically and musically to be able to produce it. But you also had, you have a family, you also have a job with the orchestra. So what, what was it like to have to you put probably hours per day into this, plus you have to do your obligations for your employer. How did that Yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> I forgot that part of your question, James. Like, yes, that's true. That was a whole nother, that was a whole nother balancing act. But I don't know if you have children, but I discovered that I have everything that I do now with my daughter in mind, I have to just do it more, less. I have to do it more efficiently. I have less time. Even though I just described a very thorough and rather complex strategy to you that I use, I did it over six months. The luxury, what I've realized now as I get older, that take advantage of the luxury of time that you might have. And I'm talking about a long period of time, not cramming anything, not feeling stressed. I never felt stressed in the preparation Although I put a lot of pressure myself on myself from the very beginning to make sure that what I was practicing, I was doing it, quote unquote, the right way, with the right sound, with the right articulation, with the right flexibility, and having my technique be, quote unquote, effortless. I worked very hard on that. And if something didn't feel or sound right, very often I would just put the horn away because I had other things to do go to my job, think about it, come back the next day and try it again. And it, inevitably, it always was a little bit better when I took that approach rather than sitting in the practice room for hours and bang, trying to bang it out and getting my lips tired. I, with my job, I can't afford to do that. So I was, I would say, doing more micro sessions that were 20 minutes, 30 minutes, rather than an hour or two hours. Sometimes multiple sessions like that throughout the day. So maybe a 20-minute session in the morning before I take my daughter to daycare maybe a 30-minute session after one of my rehearsals with the orchestra. And very often, I, I did this a lot, save my chops for the evening performance with the orchestra and come home. The drive home is about 30 minutes. I had a chance to give my chops a break. And then just do like another 20, 30-minute session around 11 o'clock at night, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, something like that. Wow, it's dedication. And, and, and when you're not playing, you're rehearsing in your mind. Like the mind is still working, even though... The horn is off your face. I was traveling a lot during that time. The Yorkshire was on tour, but I also did a lot of solo tours, uh, recital tours and some concertos in the last year. 
leading up to this. And always on the airplane, I had either the score or the trumpet part. And I was, even though probably the persons or person sitting next to me were wondering what I was doing, but I literally was practicing it in my head and conducting and singing in my head what I wanted and making notes to myself about what I needed to work on. That was very powerful. I will do that again in all the pieces that I work on as a soloist because it, it really saved a lot of time. Congratulations to you for, first of all, being selected for this. It's a huge honor. I'm sure that there are many who are probably qualified in their own right, but you were the man and you were the one selected to represent Canada for this. Now it was like the, there's a U.S. premiere, a European premiere with Hokan? Yeah, the European premiere is times two. So Hokan did it in Verbier Festival and Alison Balsam will do it with Abundance Symphony. So that's a multi-European premiere. I guess you could say the U.K. premiere and the and then the Euro, Switzerland premiere. And then you're premiering it in South Africa, premiere central here. Yeah, so I'll go to Africa, Cape Town, to play it with the Cape Town Philharmonic. And I'm also doing some educational work there too with the students. So I hope to bring in a lot of students from the area who are playing all styles, not just classical, but jazz as well. That's something I'll discuss with Witten of how we can get a lot of young players there. And my goal, and we were reaching out now to you know, conductors I've worked with and orchestras I've worked with before, context that we have to try to get it out there in the world. And again, it's to put that much work into something and have it be a one and done is a disappointment. I, this piece warrants getting heard a lot. And I want to be someone that can help get this piece out there as much as possible. As I said, I've got, it's a, it's honorable company that I'm with. I respect these players immensely, all of them. And I hope that they also, they're also probably going to get it out there. And so all of us, the four of us will champion, will try to champion Wins piece and it deserves that respect. It's really amazing. And I'm glad that we were able to connect for this Zoom call and for people who have listened in. I think that you could probably write a book on this. You're just, you've had such an experience and it's such a unique experience. Maybe you could write it or the four of you could get together and collaborate on some sort of book project or some sort of media project to just get your stories out there and put it together. And I happen to know somebody who's in the publishing business, so I can put you in, in contact with them. I think that's, especially with Winton, the way Winton thinks, conceptualizes what he does, it's so much broader than just a trumpet concerto. This is some, this is a, like I said, this is one of those projects that we're combining different styles, different player. It, it seems like it's going to give the, a cl the classical player an exposure to jazz. It's going to make them want to play jazz a little bit more, or at least appreciate it. And then a jazz player can listen to it. They can relate to it at a certain level and then say, maybe classical isn't as stuffy as I thought. I think that's true. And, and again, I'll go back to that comment I made before that in my advice to, to any younger player, whether they want to tackle this piece or any other complex piece, is that you've got to study. You've got to study the fundamentals technically, but you also have to study the fundamentals musically. You have to know how it goes. You have to know what the sound that you're creating is. That requires a lot of listening and thinking beyond the confines of uh, just technique for technique's sake. That's a limited window. You've got to have all the technical tools of, that, that anybody's ever presented into the universe. We know what those, we know what that bar is and you got to jump higher. Technical stuff. Because is that's, that's the only way we'll evolve. That's the only way the, the instrument will continue to evolve is as it should evolve. Technical stuff is the foundation. Once you master that, 
then you can play music. Uh, I think that I would say I would go a step further. I would say that don't be shy. Don't wait for the miraculous day that you feel you've mastered all your technique because that day will never come. Be the master that you can in the moment. And at the same time, at the same time, then work on your artistic message, who you are as a player, what is your stamp that you're going to put on everything that you play, whether it's in the orchestra or the band or as a soloist, get your personality and put your stamp on everything you play. And then there, there will be great moments ahead for you. There will be success for you at auditions, as a soloist, as a teacher, you have to know, you have to know what your pursuits are technically, and you also have to know what your pursuits are musically. Very well said. It's like the guitar player learns both hands at the same time. Both hands are doing something totally different, but they learn both at the same time. You can't learn how to do the chords with your left hand and then strum with your right hand. You have to learn both at the same time. Uh, I, I think that resonates a little bit with what you just said. And the more technically accurate you can be, the more it's going to enhance the music. Because if, if it's sloppy, then it's not any fun to listen to. And you can't, and let me just reverse that comment too. You can't just be all artistic and free and quote-unquote musical and as you said be sloppy technically that doesn't work it can't be if it's out of tune or it's a bad sound or it's just bad articulation can't control the dynamics then your musical message will never get across so this it, for me in the practice room it's this constant balance of being the like master craftsman on the instrument trying to like i'm in my studio right now and i'm looking at all my fundamental books. I've got all these different books I'm staring at right now. I'm working on being the best craftsman I can be, but then at the same time, when it comes to putting that solo part in front of me, I've got to now, in a way, shed that skin and go way beyond that. There's a reason that Charlie wrote Transcendental Etudes. He wants you to transcend an etude in French. Etude is study. And so he wants you to study how to transcend the music. That's what Charlie meant. And that's, I think that's a very good pursuit for any player, whether they're amateur or professional, is to constantly work at being a craftsman or craftswoman on your instrument, but then at the same time, transcend those things that you can so you can make music. Well, Paul, we've been, man, we, can you believe we've been recording for 49 minutes now? That's because I talk too much. It's just like, a, <laughs> it's just like your concerto that went, just flew by. I have one final question for you. And this is probably the most serious question. So brace yourself. How do you make an elephant sound on the trumpet? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Winton actually, Winton sent me a YouTube clip of his favorite elephant call. I'll let everybody go out on YouTube and find their favorite. I'll, I'll try to find it and put it on the show notes. It's not easy. It's not easy. And I'll tell you what, even when you watch my video, I don't know if I'm going to release any of the elephant calls, but and I had, I really struggled with that because it was like, it sounded too much like I was playing like a irons lip flexibility thing. It was too, it sounded too nice. I had to, I had to dirty it up and use my third slide and kind of slide into and slide <laughs> off of it. Yeah. And went to one of my first conversations with Winston, he was in Australia in his hotel room at one in the morning and he's, and he's wait, let me play it for you. He's oh, I can't wake people up. So I'll play it in, into a hat. And he started playing. And my daughter was, the time difference was, I don't remember, it was like probably one in the afternoon here, noon or something. So my daughter heard it and she starts coming down my studio. I'm on FaceTime with Winton and she starts coming down because she's hearing him do this elephant call. <laughs> it's just a funny moment. So that, yeah, elephant calls, not easy. Horse Winnie at the end of Sleigh Ride 
is one of the hardest things I've ever, I hate that horse Winnie. I hate it. Oh man. I have to give a shout out to Scott Moore of the Memphis Symphony. He's nailed it. And he talked about it in detail on this podcast. I'm going to put that podcast on these show notes. Oh, uh, I get it. I'm going to check that out because I need to learn how to do that better. Th- uh, these show notes are trumpetdynamics.com forward slash Merkello, M-E-R-K-E-L-O. Paul, it's been a blast, man. I'm, I'm really grateful that, first of all, that you had this opportunity and that you're taking our instrument and making it popular, like keeping the tradition alive. And that's what your goal is. And that's what my goal with the show is. And well done. And hopefully we can connect again and we can talk about how some of the further exploits of premiering this concerto go in Cape Town and wherever else you're able to make it happen. So really well done. And thanks for being on the show, man. It's a pleasure. And thank you for highlighting this magnificent work. And I appreciate what you're doing because you're helping us to have a voice and to, to get these kind of projects out into the world. We need people like you to help sponsor that, promote it. And I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. For more captivating episodes and exclusive content, visit our official website at trumpetdynamics.com. You can dive deeper into the interviews, discover additional resources, and connect with your fellow trumpeters. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and even leave a rating and review. It really helps with the visibility of the show. Until we meet again, may your fingers be fluid, your breath unimpeded, and your chops ever fresh. Play hard, 